Wow, great turnout, everybody. Thanks for coming out. So I wrote this book over here called Thirsty, and it's about how at the turn of the century, William Mulholland figured out a way to bring a water supply to this city and seed the city and seed its growth uh, for good and for ill, obviously. Um, and um, I'm just going to read a little bit from the book before Nina and I start talking. Um, so basically, uh, so desperate were certain members of certain communities in LA County that they were they searched for for rain for water because there was some severe drought-like conditions uh, periodically at the turn of the century that they turned to rainmakers to try to seed the clouds and and bring rain down. And these people had also thought the world was 5,000 years old, so they weren't the most rational people in the world. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about uh, one specific and quite successful rainmaker. Um, uh, Angelinos have always had an irrational relationship with water. On the one hand, they praise the temperate climate as a blessing, but blessings don't guarantee the grace of a steady water supply. It was part of the social compact that the first Anglo settlers made with the land. Develop at all costs and worry about the ramifications later. In a semi-arid region where rainfall is seasonal and rarely exceeds 12 inches a year and distribution of water is inequitable, Apocalyptic thoughts of impending drought in turn of the century Los Angeles could create false prophets preaching apocalypse or hope around the corner. Midwestern farmers had had their share of water deprivations in the 1890s, including a series of devastating droughts that destroyed hundreds of thousands of acres. From this panic sprang a new industry of rainmakers who, for a small fee, would make the clouds part and the rains come. One of these organizations, the Interstate Artificial Rain Company, moved into Pixley, a postage stamp central California town in Tulare County in 1892. Their siphons and tanks clanging down the road behind them. After receiving his rain fee, the company's rain persuader, who was vested with some combination of dime store magic and scientific doublespeak, began to do his thing, mixing up an elaborate alchemic elixir in a giant vat that would surely persuade nature to do his bidding. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Um, so this is specifically about Charles Hatfield, who's the... Uh, the most successful quote-unquote rainmaker. As a boy growing up on his father's farm in San Diego, Charles Mallory Hatfield became enamored of pluviculture, or the art of rainmaking, after reading Edward Power's 1871 book on the subject. Like an eager magician's apprentice who's anxious to hold center stage, Hatfield began trying to replicate Power's experiments in the garage. The story, as Hatfield would retell it years later, before large groups of credulous dignitaries at rubber chicken dinners, was that after a number of tries, Hatfield eventually created a slight precipitation. <laughs> Emboldened by his homemade alchemy, or else taken in by his own dumb luck, Hatfield decided to make a business out of pluviculture. He began modestly. A landowner in 1903 gave Hatfield 50 bucks to produce some rainfall for his plot. Hatfield produced about an inch. <laughs> the landowner told everyone in the town about Hatfield's feet, and the rainmaker was well on his way. Hatfield, who called himself a chemist, had a perfectly logical explanation as to how he made rain. It was simple, really. 
He would produce a couple of his large evaporation tanks and fill them with a variety of indeterminate chemicals, which, when sent to the atmosphere from a funnel, would meet their affinity, would quote, meet their affinity in the moisture and draw the dampness from all directions toward the desired spot. Very scientific, as you can see. This might take days or even weeks, but once the moisture was gathered, it was a simple process to create rain. Desperate farmers and copy-starved journalists bought into it. For eight years, Hadfield set up his bulky tanks, large wooden basins that stood about 20 feet tall on farms all across Southern California, taking ever larger fees from farmers. Invariably, the Wizard of Esperanza, quote-unquote, would stare down the cynics and win over the skeptics. Um, so I don't make I'm jumping ahead I don't make rain that would be an absurd claim Hatfield once told the reporter I merely attract the clouds and they do the rest it is a mere matter of cohesive attraction and the conditions that produce rain are drawn by my system just as a magnet draws steel Hatfield was a charlatan but he was also a keen actuary he had examined the water table across 28 rainy seasons in Los Angeles since 1877 and had determined that 18 inches or more had fallen half the time since the city was in the throes of a prolonged drought, Hatfield figured the odds of nudging closer were nudging closer to, towards him than against him. His biggest coup occurred, coup occurred in the fall of 1904. Hatfield offered to conjure up 18 inches of rain in exchange for $1,000 raised by the Chamber of Commerce or through public subscription. If anything less than the allotted 18 inches didn't fall, Hatfield would refuse the money. The money was raised in three days. Hatfield filled up his evaporation tanks and the city waited. By early 1905, the rain started coming and it didn't let up. By March, Hatfield had collected his $1,000 fee. (laughs) I mean, what's remarkable is this man never got caught. His whole life was just like people literally thought this is what he did. So he was a very fortunate and lucky man. But it speaks to the credulity and the naivete at the time that people, and the desperation at the time, that they would turn to this fool, this uneducated fool, to, uh, to do such a thing. So I'm going to uh, bring up the uh, wonderful and esteemed Nina Rivore right now. We're going to have a little talk about water and Mulholland, etc. Yes, Mark, we're going to have a little talk. A little talk, Nina. What are you going to talk about? Uh, First of all, great to see so many people here. Thank you for coming out for for Mark. Um, Well, I guess the... I love that story. It's one of my... There there are many very entertaining stories in this book that you would not believe. Um, But that one is especially good. Um, But I guess let's start with the the obvious question. Why this book? What made you decide to write about water and why does the Mulholland story still have relevance now? Well... Anyone who lives in L.A. for more than a month knows that it's painfully obvious as to why this is a very relevant subject. But when I started thinking about the book, we weren't quite yet in the throes of this drought issue. I actually had saw like a squib in the L.A. Times about the uh, the dam disaster, the St. Francis dam disaster, and I just really honestly didn't know much about it. So I was like, "Wow, this is really interesting," and I thought, "Well." Maybe a lot of other people don't know about it. So I started researching it, and that just sent me down the rabbit hole into the whole story. So it started from, like, the end, and I reverse-engineered my way from the end of the story back to the beginning of the story. But, I mean, it's like, Jesus Christ. I mean, 
I mean, you know, there's so much going on in terms of not only the drought, but in terms of like price gouging, in terms of communities that are getting hit by these arbitrary rate hikes, which I have in my book that happened like, you know, in 1893 and still happens now. There's a lot of prudent baudries running around. This is, this is also one of the fun things is that you keep coming across names in this book that like Baudry. Um, where uh, you don't even think about the, the streets and then you find out who the people were that lent their names to the streets and you don't necessarily want to drive on them anymore. So, <laughs> but I mean, this is, this no, is an, an entree into saying if you think the DWP is bad, and I hope right. there's no DWP employee here, and if there is, <laughs> forgive, so bad, forgive me. Um, Water. So, so could you tell us a little bit about what Baudry's, uh, Prudent Baudry's role was? He's insane. Yeah. Although it's <laughs> not too insane because it kind of still happens today in a much smaller scale. But Prudent Baudry was, uh, um, you know, one of these small-time scramblers at the turn of the century, just trying to make a buck however he can, right? And uh, he was originally selling dry goods to prospectors during the gold rush. That was like, but he did okay with that. And then he thought, and then from the, the money he made that, he started buying up some land, and he started getting into the ice business. He was selling ice to people. And then he decided, well, I really want to get into the water business in a big time way. And so he, long story short, he persuaded the city to lease him all the water rights for the city for 30 years for like $500, which even then was not a lot of money, okay, for that kind of a thing. And basically, he was, he sucked. He was awful. He ripped off the city. He arbitrarily raised rates. He just wanted to cede his land, basically, is what he was going. And he got sued for this. There was a big lawsuit that I would get into about Baudry. And, um, but, you know, obviously, he wasn't atypical. Uh, of this type of character at the turn of the century, all these hustlers who were just doing these horribly unseemly, unseemly things. And this one guy controlled all of the city. For three water. decades. Yeah, amazing. And then g tell us a little bit about what the water system was like in Los Angeles. Well, it started out as a ditch, right? <laughs> it was literally a ditch in Alvera Street. Okay, which was called the Zanja Madre, and then from there it flowed, and over the years it flowed onto other other ditches and estuarial ditches. Uh, it was a fucking mess. I mean, <laughs> because it was just impossible to maintain. A rainstorm would block the ditches. Branches would get in there. Dead bodies would get in those ditches. <laughs> I know because it was also a pretty insanely violent place at the time. And there was a, you know, there was the big water wheel that, that was downtown. There was like that one water wheel that was, it was, <laughs> it was extremely crude. And all these ditches, all these estuaries are made out of wood. So not the most reliable conveyor of water, right? So it was an absolute mess and prior to Mulholland. And this was your drinking water. This was your drinking water. With the water. animals and the feces. The animals and the, and the humans and the humans, humans in it. Yes. So. Looks like today. <laughs> so, so speaking of, I mean, of, you know, the, the biggest personality. I mean, there's a lot of big personalities in this book, but obviously the, the center of the book is William Mulholland. Right. And, I mean, history, and, and again, another street, you know, obviously a lot number of things. Of streets, a number of streets. There's a highway and a freeway. Exactly. There's a park. There's, there's many things. Is There's a book imprint. <laughs> 
Mulholland books. Anyway. Okay, yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay. There's a movie. There's a movie. Um, well, there's a couple movies. A couple we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. But how do you see, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you see him? Do you see him as a positive force? Do you see him as a negative force? That was the hardest, that was the thing I had to grapple the most mm-hmm. with when writing the book. Because, like just about everyone else, the prev- my prevailing myth was Chinatown, right? And Cadillac Desert and a number of other things that had been written about Mulholland. So I thought he was a terrible person. And I went into it sort of thinking I was going to write that. Mm-hmm. But, but I couldn't. I just simply couldn't. So it's like, it's... <laughs> It's very complicated. I still have a mixed. I still have mixed feelings about him. Well, what surprised you? What surprised you about him? Well, I think his intentions were noble. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to help the city. You know, he wanted to see it its growth. He wanted it to be a thriving metropolis. He, he loved it. Mm-hmm. And the minute he, you know, he, he came from Dublin, mm-hmm. <laughs> virtually on foot and steerage, right? Um, one of those guys. And he, you know, he he loved the city, and um, his intentions were good. But he was arrogant, and he was hubristic, and you know, there was zero regulation, right? So he really could do whatever the fuck he wanted to, and no one ever questioned his intentions. So that was really the problem with Mulholland. There was just no, there was no oversight in terms of what he could, could and could not do. So, um, and that led to the deaths of four hundred. 400 people eventually in 1928, right? So um, it's complicated. So we'll, we'll talk about that. It is complicated. And it, you do have these mixed feelings because the ambition, I mean, do you all know the stats on the, the Los Angeles aqueduct? I mean, just can you, like, how, what it actually entailed, how big it is, what it enabled? It was a massive project to put that thing, to build that aqueduct. It took years with no, you know, they didn't have caterpillars then, they didn't have any technology, they just, uh, uh, drills were just being introduced, so it was really very difficult, and obviously and it was in the desert, in punishing conditions, they did not have, hard hats had not been invented yet, <laughs> so, you know, people got really hurt, you know, um, but, um, they did it, and Mulholland actually paid them quite well. There was actually a bonus system. The faster they went, the more they, they would get paid, and he, and, he, and he kept them lubricated with a lot of whiskey as well. So that Right, didn't it? Wasn't the, the it was a, yeah, whiskey built the aqueduct. <laughs> so that didn't hurt. But it was a massive civil engineering undertaking, not unlike certain parts of the Panama Canal, even. Well, and you look at this guy who came from this really humble background, who was trying to do something because he had a vision for the city. Um, And there is, you know, it's hard not to have at least some sympathy or some admiration Mm -hmm. for what he's trying. This is a guy who worked without maps. Who was self-taught, by the way. A self-taught civic engineer. It was pretty insane. Then, okay, so another... uh, place in the city. You all know um, Eaton Canyon? Anyone, any hikers here? You, okay, all right, great place, right? You all know where the Fred Eaton? Okay, so, so so tell us a little bit about Fred Eaton. So Fred Eaton was also at the water department when, when Mulholland was there. He was one of the, he came from one of the first families of LA, really. His family basically was one of the first few families to settle Pasadena. His father was a Harvard-educated lawyer, 
but really just wanted to grow vineyards, and so he built, he bought thousands of acres of vineyards in Pasadena, and so Eaton grew up a privileged a life of privilege, um, and then he became, and he was briefly mayor of the city. That's the other thing we have to talk about. Like, I'm also the sheriff, and I'm the mayor. That's how that's what it was like then. Everyone was a sheriff or a mayor. And the, it was it's amazing. Prudent Birdry was mayor of the city right, for right, a while. Right, right. You know, it's remarkable how that happened. Anyway, so and so uh, so Eaton was sort of. Uh, you know, uh, Mulholland's handmaiden in the acquisition of the land required in the Owens Valley, right, for the Owens River, which is 240 miles away, right? They needed all the land rights to get the water. And Eaton was um, uh, Mulholland's Man Friday in terms of buying up all that land. Um, and obviously that's where a lot of the controversy kicks in. And then Eaton kept some of this prime land and jacked up the prices, um, you know, profited from the the city, you know, wouldn't sell it back to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. except at a prime price. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, it's just fascinating. This is a guy who had been the mayor of Los Angeles. They have been the mayor of Los Angeles. And then is going to... But he was out for his own private gain and that created a huge rift with... See, let's think about Mulholland. Mulholland was not... See, here's the thing. China, you know, the John Houston character in Chinatown is ostensibly supposed to be Mulholland. And, you know, Mulholland was not really in it. Not that he wasn't wealthy, he was, but he wasn't in it for that. Mm-hmm. And that's what Reisner also talks about in Cadillac Does. That's not the case. It really isn't. So that's why I kind of changed my mind about him. So, speak, so on that subject, when the aqueduct was going to go forward and Mulholland had sorted all this out, there had to be a bond passed, a city bond, you know, to, to pay for its construction. And the LA Times got behind this idea 150%. Um, why? <laughs> <laughs> because they had, because Harrison Otis, who's the owner of the LA Times, and Harry Chandler, you know that name, Chandler, the original Chandler, who was his number two at the Times, bought. Millions of acres of land in this city. Like they were, especially Chandler was the biggest landowner in this city. So <laughs> it was in their vested interest that this one, much like Chinatown, that he did, the, they got that right. It did that it was in their vested interest. And this is all in the valley. You know, they bought the, much of this land in the valley, and they wanted that water. So Otis just hit it. So and obviously, <laughs> newspapers. Listen, kids, newspapers mattered then, and people read them. <laughs> Okay, you, you have a very funny Let me comment explain in there. Like, something I, to you, you about say it's newspapers. Hard, it's hard to believe now. It is. But. It was a massively powerful media organ. The Los Angeles Times was the most powerful media organ in this city, and it wielded tremendous clout. And Otis did. And <laughs> I mean, it's re- like I talk about. It's remarkable what passes for journalism in his newspaper sometimes. I mean, some of this advocacy he's writing on front page, uh, passing for a front page article, um, ostensibly a news article. But anyway, so that's why. It was was a land thing. But I want to point out, and I discovered this also when I was researching, that it was not a secret syndicate. Mm -hmm. There was no cabal. It was actually all the land purposes were publicly announced. So, um, you know, did, were they selfish? Yes, did they have selfish motivations, 100%. But it was not done in secret. And that's what Chinatown gets wrong, absolutely. So, when the aqueduct is built and being built, you, you, uh, of course, folks in the Owens Valley, understandably, 
really unhappy. All kinds of, you know, it, it, protests, letters to the government, um, occupying sites, bombing aqueduct, you know, areas, and it was just really interesting to because. Technically, it's the big bad government, mm -hmm. you know, coming in and, and taking over. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at this book again, and I, I had read it, you know, some months ago and read it again. Just keep week. reading it, Nina. I, I just keep reading it. <laughs> no, keep reading new copies. Yeah. Is the um, e-book. E e yeah. <laughs> um, I kept thinking, you know, is there... You know, those guys in Oregon right now who are, who've taken over the wildlife refuge, you know, is it, yeah. is, are these No, like, because those guys in Oregon are just, think that the federal government should just hand them over that land that, is, that doesn't belong to them. They're fucking Looney Tunes. At least the people in Owens Valley, they, I mean, not that I advocate the bombing of the aqueduct mm -hmm. and people getting hurt, but they did have a gripe. Mm -hmm. um, they literally were seeing their community just sort of being colonized by Los Angeles, especially those that didn't profit from land purchases, right? right? I mean, some people right. are like, hey, this is great. I made a lot of money. A lot of people didn't. So, no, that Oregon, no, that's totally different. That's just an arbitrary demand that has no basis in law or anything else, you know? So... I would agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not a fan. Um, the St. Francis, you've, you've referred to the dam disaster a couple times, and I didn't realize that that's how you got into yeah. you know, the subject even. Yeah. So do you see that... You know, first of all, what's your take on it? You know, there have been so many things... Well, I mean, that was really like... And I have to give credit to... There's a couple of other writers who have done years of rigorous research on that specific subject because um, that was always a question in my mind as to Mulholland's culpability in that disaster. And it was like near the tail end of my research, I came across this paper about it, and they subsequently have written a book about it. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, what happened was, and I, it, goes, it speaks to Mulholland's lack of accountability, right? Um, basically, the dam collapsed because he hadn't put a lot of safety features in place, just to make a long story short, such as grout curtains, which sort of, uh, anyway, and he made the base too small, and that and he kept on adding to the height of the of the of the dam, so it was sort of like this, and it created and it was because it's a it's a gravity dam, and that created a lot of problems. And the problem is that uh, by, by 1911, this had, uh, people had already been writing about um, ways to remedy that problem. Mm -hmm. So it was it was public knowledge, and had he given a shit, and, and cared about what anybody else was thinking about the subject, he could have made those corrections, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was, speaks to his, you know, his greatness and his shortcoming mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, his arrogance, which allowed him to do what he did as such a young man, and then his hubris, which created the dam disaster. Some of these guys, and it's, it's almost like biblical what totally. happened to them. You know, that the, the hubris, the ambition, the vision of Mulholland, and then the fact that he ends up as this, this lonely, sad, really sad person who knows that he is responsible. You know, whether criminally responsible or just negligent. The dam... But for the death... Just explain what happened with the yeah, collapse. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. This dam, they used to... Hold, it was... Ironically, Eaton, Fred Eaton had this plot of land in Lone Pine that Mohan wanted to use that would have been 
arguably might have been a safer spot location for the dam. It said they moved it somewhere else. It collapsed, and over 400 people died. This water traveled 26 miles to the sea. I mean, it was a huge, huge... It's the largest man-made disaster of the 20th century. <clears throat> Entire neighborhoods were completely obliterated by it. I mean, it's just so tragic. And he felt it. He felt it. He felt the weight of it. And Fran- San Francisco Canyon, which is... No, it's near, it's up, I'm not sure exactly, but, but when it broke, it went through like Valencia, Fillmore, Fillmore all the way yeah, to yeah, San Francisco. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he, reti- he retired uh, from the water department after decades and just, um, he died shortly thereafter. And then Fred Eaton, who had made this huge land grab and had been so selfish about, you know, trying to sell the money back to the city, um, you know what happened to him. He died and he, he ultimately never got the money yeah. and it went, yeah. went it, he went bankrupt. Yeah, he went bankrupt. Died, kind of insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the city got the land anyway for cheap. Right. And then his wife... Um, I don't know about his wife. His, about his wife. His wife. <laughs> They're telling me something new now. I don't know about his wife. had him declared insane and went, remember this guy used to be the mayor, went in front of the city council and asked for money. So, b- biblical, biblical. Indeed. So, Indeed. So speaking of like such grand, and I'll kind of end with this, grand questions, who, you know, and this is all, all of this is a struggle for who controls, you mm-hmm. know, natural resources. Mm-hmm. Who does... Mm-hmm. Own the water. It's a public asset. Well, the problem is, we, who well, should decide? Who gets well, it? that's still being debated today. Because if you look at places, just in terms of small communities like Apple Valley and Ojai, and I believe Downey, they're trying to rest it. Are still controlled by these little prudent boudries running around mm-hmm. the private, the private interests, and it's insane because. It's a drought. It's just a drought conditions right now, and they're jacking the prices up like massively, right? So um, those people, are tr- the, the the public sphere is trying to take over those um, those three entities. So it's still very much it still very much exists. The LA the the DWP is controlled by you know there's a, there's a water commission. There's a five member water commission that's appointed by the mayor, I believe. Um, and they set rate, they set all the rates for the city, they set the salaries for everyone. So it's five people that decide all, all this. But it's ultimately, obviously, a public asset. Water, I mean, of course it is. But um, you know, it's just like and the malfeasance that happened at DWP, that mysterious four million that went that went missing last year. You know, so a lot of skullduggery still going on with water. Okay, I guess one more question, then we'll open it up. Okay, are we going to have enough water? <laughs> We're doomed. My, my father, my father moved out of the state. We're doomed, Nina. Because of the water. Really? Yes. Wow. He moved. Where did he go? Idaho. Mojave Desert. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, they're well, you know, we're get, you know, and then the other thing is like, people are wondering what's happening with El Nino right now mm. because we're not getting rain. So it's the same. This is tw- it is ever thus. This exact same conversations people used to have in 1893. Like, where's the rain? Everyone said the rain was coming. Now, however, the Sierra snowpack is looking really good right now. So we should be we should be okay for now. But we'll probably all die. Any questions? <laughs> anyway.
I mean, the fact that we are saving water the way we are, the way we're conserving water, it's pretty remarkable, actually. I mean, I guess 20 years ago, I don't remember, but I just just to see what's happening now in terms of people's cautiousness about it, it's pretty cool, you know? It's pretty amazing, I think. And then we're losing about 80% of the rainwater. Right. Correct. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anybody else? Chip? What's the greatest mis- misconception about the water wars that Well, I was saying, like, just like that, that, that LA wasn't 100% guilty. I mean, I'll say this about it. I think our original sin in regards to the Owens River was that we just left it to rot. You know, we took their water and then we created a fucking ecological disaster over there. And it took literally two years ago for Garcetti to finally say, you know, this is wrong, we were wrong, and we need to rectify this, and we're just starting to rectify it now. But it took many years of lawsuits that the, that the city vehemently fought. So that, I think, is the real crime. That we just left Owens River, just, you know, the alkaline deposits, the dust storm disasters. I mean, it was an ecological nightmare. So that was fucked up. <laughs> right? But, I, but in terms of the water wars, like I'm saying, it's, a, it's just like a more nuanced portrait of Mohan than I originally, than I originally anticipated. You know, David? Well, it's the choice of painting, man. I mean, it's particularly appropriate. What is the water? It's water. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> 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 my breath, as you were talking earlier, but you know, recently, Nestle, of course, is being sued for all kinds of, you know, of the private water of Arabo, public resource. Did any of your research into this, you know, literally walk right to, the to that to, to today? And it's the exact same people, the exact same situations. And, I can't speak. I know about the. I've read about the Nestle situation. I can't really speak to it with any intelligence. <laughs> but and I was totally blinkered. Like I just ended my research in 28, and I was just like I was living in. <laughs> I was just living at the turn of the century for years. I just wanted to make sure that I got the story right. But obviously, there's just so many tentacles to it. You know, I mean, you know, the Nestle. They own Fuji Fuji Water or. I believe one of the big bottled water. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the big bottled Arrowhead. Arrowhead. Right, correct. Yeah. Bought the water rights for $12. Right. They still own them since they came to Right. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Um, so where, like Matt Damon's into water, I mean, where, where are the water? He likes water. <laughs> where are the water investors calling? Where's the smart money? I don't even know. I can't answer. Maybe Nina can answer. Oh, Nina can tell you about, I don't know, you can tell us about, the L.A. River and the revitalization plans, specifically what Geary is doing, right? Just briefly. 
Uh, well, we were just talking about the fact, you know, Mark's story starts with the river. And it is almost inconceivable to me to think of the L.A. River without concrete. Right. And that Mulholland writes about it in this kind of poetic, rhapsodic way of how beautiful it, it was. Yeah. Never, the, I mean, the plant life, the yeah, vegetation. Like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> this but, uh, Edenic Glen in the middle of L.A. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, so we were, were talking about the fact that in the, you know, so fast forward to, to now, and everyone knows, you know, things have to be done with the river. Are you going to break it free of concrete, et cetera? And then uh, the, you know, the public announcement last fall that, uh, last summer, that, that Frank Geary is working, you know, to help design, to decide what to do with the river. Um, and uh, I, only, I only know a little bit about this because we're, my organization is working with him on another project. Um, but, but what I will say is that in talking with them about the river project, it brought up all. It, it brings up the same questions: Who owns the river? Because the Los Angeles River doesn't just go through the city of Los Angeles; it goes through different parts of the county of Los fed, Angeles. It's also a federal it's issue. A, it's the Army Corps of Engineers, right? So, so it's not. Even though it's been our mayor who has been talking about how great this project, he can't actually can't make it, yeah. all the decisions because the the river goes through all of these, and then there's neighborhoods involved, and there's egos involved, and there's politics involved, and it's just really, it's just very interesting. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how that's going to go. But what's good about all that is that we do have this consciousness about the river and that we want to revitalize it and beautify it and do something about it, which is great. Yeah. Because it's just been this concrete channel since 1938. Yeah. The problem was it kept flooding its banks, and there were some really catastrophic floods in the 30s. So the Army Corps of Engineers just came in and they just laid concrete down over all of it, which created a lot of great movie scenes. <laughs> Point blank, Terminator. Reese, Terminator. <laughs> right? Where, where was the pump in the story that you're telling? Did they all just buy it? They were for it, yeah. I mean, the LA public was certainly for it because they were worried. Yeah. And Mulholland was a great salesman and he sold them on it. You know, he like, he went on the stump. And he was like, we need to do this. And people invested a lot of trust in him. And so the bond passed almost unanimously. Um, of course, the city was only 100,000 large, believe it or not, that he can't even conceive of it now. And no one asked the Owens Valley people. And, no one asked the, and obviously no one asked the Owens Valley people. And if you read my book, you'll read all about that issue, which is really kind of interesting but um it's so interesting it is so much fun and i mean if, if you are interested in water you know and, and and the city and politics it's great but it's just like if you're interested in character there are just some crazy people that show up in this way you almost hard. won't believe that they're real um it's and true. it's a lot of fun to read so yeah. you should all buy it on that note <laughs> thanks for coming out everybody thank you You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.